Hey, Planet Money listeners. If you're looking for other great shows, other great podcasts to check out, we recommend the TED Radio Hour, hosted by Guy Raz. They recently did a show all about the end of privacy, asking the question whether privacy will soon be a relic of the past. You can find this show and all their other episodes on iTunes, along with a bunch of other NPR podcasts. A few months ago, we got a phone call from Gregory Warner. Gregory is the East Africa correspondent for NPR, and he said, Hey guys, I have just been to Somalia. I traveled on a reporting trip to Mogadishu, the capital. And, and Greg, give us a little flavor for what it's like to be in Mogadishu these days. Well, my journey started out in a bulletproof SUV. Compliments of the United Nations. With me in the back seat uh, was Justin Brady. He works for the UN. That's why I was in his car. But look, we're both wearing body armor. And there's a second car behind us with more guys with guns. And we're allowed to stop wherever we want. But there's this rule that we can't stay in any one place for more than 15 minutes. Which I take it is a safety thing so you don't get attacked. Yeah, because the longer you're in any one place, the bad guys might know where you are. They might kidnap you or you know, blow you up. And Brady assures me that where we are is actually one of the safer parts of Mogadishu. In this area, we wouldn't expect anything major, any major problems. It's a relatively peaceful area, part of the city. We did hear a few stray gunshots that could very well just be somebody testing out their gun to make sure it still works. Now, Justin Brady is a big guy. He's got a bald head. He used to clear landmines for a living. I mean, he looks tough and he talks tough. And when I met him last year, his job was, well, it's more dangerous than his job title would suggest. Because he was then the head of the UN agency that coordinates humanitarian aid to Somalia's poor people. Now, normally when a country's in crisis, if there's famine, if there's war, aid workers tend to have this routine. They send in teams. They create a system to get food to starving people. I, I picture guys with beards, you know, clipboards, handing out sacks of rice. But you were telling us that in Somalia, it was so dangerous for such a long time that nobody wanted to stand around out in the open for more than 15 minutes with a clipboard handing out rice. That essentially, there was no easy way to get this food to the people who needed it. That's right. And this became a huge problem in 2011 when this massive famine swept the country. It was worst famine in 60 years. You had starving villagers walking for days just to get to the nearest city for a handout. Um, seven-year-old children who looked the size of toddlers. And yet, at the same time, most of the country was just too dangerous for non-Somali aid workers to travel. So... You have this situation where U.N. workers are literally looking at satellite images of camps. They're counting the number of tents to try to figure out the number of people down there that they need to send in food to feed. And then they dispatch local Somalis to deliver the food and just hope it got where it's supposed to go. This is, of course, not ideal. But Edem Wasorno at the U.N. said back then they just had no choice. All we could think about was save lives. Save lives. Get the assistance in. We knew that some of the assistance would be diverted, but what could you do? In the absence of a, a perfect system, assist the people, save lives. That was your mantra. Now, after the famine ends in 2012 and you have this Islamist militant group, Al-Shabaab, kind of getting pushed out of Mogadishu, things got a little bit safer, at least enough that a guy like Justin Brady from the UN could actually be based in the Mogadishu. He's the first guy in his position to do that. And so he could strap on his body armor 
and drive around to see, hey, what happened to all that food we sent? Now, what Justin Brady found was that some Somalis had turned all of this humanitarian aid into a business opportunity. The bags of rice from the U.N. had created a whole industry around distributing aid and sheltering the poor. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Gregory Warner. I'm East Africa correspondent for NPR. And today we're going to visit a country with almost no government, but a lot of entrepreneurs. lessons of Somalia is that even when you don't have a functioning government, you can still have an economy. And that was the situation in Mogadishu. I mean, it was too dicey for aid groups on the ground. But these local businesses popped up. People with extra land would say, hey, all these refugees in the street, they can stay here. They can stay with us. And then they told the UN, hey, you know, just give me the food and the tents and we'll take it from here. And these camps were not shy about advertising. As I'm driving in that UN Land Rover, Justin Brady points out the window and we can see wooden signs posted by the side of the road. They're hand-painted in English. Each one has a camp name, somebody's phone number. And some of the signs have these big red arrows, like to say, hey, aid workers, bring your food over here. So it's at one of these signs that Justin Brady orders our convoy to stop. Oh, this is the sign. Let's see if you can. Wow, so there's an email address on there, too. Is this, is this your email address and your phone number? Next to the sign, I meet Mrs. Adad Hassan Jamali. She's a stout woman in a black headscarf, super friendly, quick to give us a tour of the camp past tents and old latrines and a very bare-bones school. I mean, there's no books, no pens, no chairs, just kids basically singing on the floor. And on this land live more than 200 families and many dozens of orphans, she says. It looks actually kind of like a camp that you might find in any war-torn country or, you know, see on CNN. But Mrs. Jamali is not a professional. She just had some spare land next to the airport, and she herself paid to clear this land to make space for the tents. And then she helped distribute the food that the U.N. flew in, which made me wonder why was she doing all this? The U.N. wasn't paying her salary. The people living in these tents are mostly too poor to pay rent. So I asked her, how do you pay for this? And it was really an awkward question because first she says she gets no money. She's just doing this for Allah. Then she says, well, all right, if there's some extra food from the U.N. that's left over... Yeah, she might take some of that and sell it for cash. But the clue to how this business really runs comes when she admits to a deal that she struck with another landowner, where she put some extra families on his land, and in exchange... We have to pay him 10%. That is 10% of the bed nets the paraffin, the bags of rice, whatever you've seen on some glossy photograph in a U.N. brochure, 10% of those aid packages goes not to the poor, but to the landowner. And is that a common deal around here, that you'll rent the land and then 10% for assistance? It seems like... That is common deal for everywhere. Now, Gregory, 10% makes it sound 
nice and formal, but basically this is stealing food. <laughs> this is stealing food meant for poor people. This is stealing food that was paid for by Western taxpayers. Yeah, and, and, and she's reselling this on the open market. It's completely illegal, but it's, it's a thriving business in Somalia. And to start one of these private camps, well, first you need land. You need a private militia to guard it, says Somalia. And then you need starving people, which during that 2011 famine was really easy to come by. Jamali could go to villages and find people whose farms had all dried up and their livestock had died and say to them, all right, come with me. I have a place for you. Jamali points to the kids here in this little school. In some cases, she could actually collect, that is, purchase displaced orphans from another camp. You see these orphans. Some of them I have collected from other camps. Some of them I have collected from their villages. And this business of collecting and trading displaced people was so common that aid workers came up with a name for these camp owners. They call them gatekeepers. Because if you want to give aid to poor people, you have to go through the gatekeepers. And importantly, they could talk with the aid agencies that drop by. They could say, we have this number of people and these are their needs. Here's my email if you have any questions. Brady describes visiting another camp. You know, when we went there, this woman came out. Um, she was explaining to us all the needs in great detail. Yes, we have shelter problems. We have water problems. Please make, make this site as profitable for us as possible. And the problem is that's where the people went. Brady figured it wasn't unreasonable for these people to expect some small profit in exchange for camp management. But in a country with few laws, this business did not stop there. If you get a percentage cut of aid for every person in your private camp, the incentive is to collect more and more people. The incentive is to take a bigger and bigger cut of the aid. Now, because of security, Brady and I had very little time to actually speak to the displaced people who lived in these camps. But I met one in a different camp. Her name is Halima Sheikali. She tells a story about some plastic sheets. They were distributed by an aid agency. When the displaced people went to take them, there were only a handful left, not enough to protect all their tents from the rain. The rest had been sold. So what happens if you complain to the camp leader about this? Who will talk to you? He will not speak to you. He's the one who takes these things. She tells me this other story about an aid agency distributing 100 ration cards. And ration cards are these cards that give you access to food distributions. But the gatekeeper kept 85 cards to either give away to his militiamen or sell on the open market. 85 cards. So that's like 85% of the aid, which we should note is way higher than the 10% cut that Mrs. Jamali said was the standard for Somali gatekeepers. Yeah, and I wanted to ask Mrs. Sheikh Ali about this, except our security detail said, nope, the 15 minutes are over. We have to roll out for security reasons. Now, when Justin Brady started to make the rounds, remember he was the first in his position to actually be based in Mogadishu, he heard lots of stories like this. He heard of gatekeepers confiscating ration cards to make sure that people didn't leave his camp for someone else's. And Brady felt angry. And he felt helpless. They're playing with other people's lives. You know, these are people who have come into this city because of famine, because of armed conflict. They might have been shepherds 
who no longer have a flock, and in fact they become the flock. They are now the sheep who are herded around this city um, and used for, for the gain of others. And then he found that sometimes these gatekeepers would exaggerate the size of their so-called flocks. He remembers counting the tents on those satellite photos to estimate the aid back when it was too dangerous to go in. The tents, they assumed, each held a hungry family. But now he was seeing those tents for the first time up close. The one we're staring at here right now seems to have a a sheet with... uh, Red and blue flowers on a pink background, and to the side of that, a green towel, uh, and then another sheet of polka-dotted material. You know, it's all been sort of stitched together, a little bit of nylon sheeting there as well underneath. Humanitarian aid had been shipped to this camp, but Brady realized that almost no one lives here. It hasn't met a fire here quite some time. There's nothing showing that anybody intends to build a fire. How do you know that it hasn't had a fire? There's just regular signs of, of activity here, accumulation of coals. Uh, there's no stacking of wood here. You know, just starting to pick it apart and go, okay, does anybody really live in this? Now, Somalis even have a name for these fake tents. They call them rice huts. They're meant to attract no people, only the bags of rice that say gift of the U.S. government. So you can imagine once Brady and the U.N. and aid agencies started to get on the ground in Somalia, once they saw what was happening, they got a bit freaked out. They brought all this valuable aid to this country. They created these incentives, and then they spawned a whole industry, exploiting the people they were supposed to help. Remember, I mean, helping displaced people, by its very nature, is supposed to be temporary. It's supposed to be until those people go back home, back to their villages. That famine ended two years ago. But now there is this profitable incentive for powerful Somali landlords to make sure those people stay displaced and stay dependent on Western aid. Yeah, when the Westerners who work in Somalia, they they look around at this and it seems almost like they, they faced an existential crisis. You know, what are we doing here? And in fact, you told us, Greg, that after you left Somalia, Justin Brady ended up leaving the U.N., Yeah, actually, he went back to his first career, clearing landmines. It's a world where helping people is a lot more black and white. Meanwhile, the humanitarian workers that are still sending food to Somalia have tried all these different strategies to make that food harder to steal. But really nothing can get around the fact that gatekeepers are on the ground, aid workers are not. And these camps, because of security, cannot be effectively monitored. And so finally, even some of the people who advocate for displaced people are telling me, we need drastic measures. Mark Yornell is with Refugees International. The reason that gatekeepers exist and the reason that they benefit is because there's aid coming into Mogadishu that they can steal. So how do you actually stop the system that's so deeply entrenched in Mogadishu? You cut off the flow of resources, you cut off the supply, and they'll have to look for other, other business opportunities. Just stop sending aid, Yarnell says, at least to those camps that are wildly abusing the system. But that is not a message that the UN is ready to hear. I think it's, it's not possible. The humanitarian imperative means you have to assist people. This is Edem Wasorno again. Remember, she's the one we heard from earlier saying that she was there sending aid to Somalia in 2011, trying to save lives, knowing that aid was being stolen. She's now replaced Justin Brady as the new head of the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Somalia. It is the agency that would decide, hey, aid should go to this camp and not that camp. But 
when I raise Yarnell's idea of maybe cutting off the really bad gatekeepers. She says the UN does not acknowledge any gatekeepers as playing a role. I mean, not officially. But do I know who the gatekeeper, a list of gatekeepers in Mogadishu? No way. Do you think it would help to be a little more honest about the fact that gatekeepers are a part of the system and maybe say, okay, but at least this one is a pretty good one. He only, he only steals maybe 10%, but this one's stealing 80 You're shaking your head. I'm shaking my head because I'm thinking then it will be accepted, that they, they should be there. They shouldn't be there. But saying they shouldn't be there doesn't help them not to be there. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But I, I guess maybe I'm stuck with the perfection. And perfection to Wasorno means that Somalia should just get what other countries in crisis have. Public land for displaced people, secure enough for aid agencies to set up shop themselves and make sure that the aid gets where it should. Greg, basically the S- Somali authorities can decide to move people tomorrow. The United Nations did finally get its chance to try out this idea of perfection. In September of 2012, Somalis elected a government, the first one in 21 years. And the government offered land to the UN in a remote Mogadishu suburb called Danile. It said it had enough space there for 50,000 displaced people. Mostly what the Somali government wanted was to get rid of all those dirty tents in downtown Mogadishu. They wanted to put up luxury hotels and shopping malls and that now prime real estate. But the UN saw its chance to extricate itself from the gatekeeper system for good. The Danile camp was planned as a total upgrade for displaced people. One big organized camp with better living conditions, clean water, good sanitation, even medical clinics. Only Danile didn't have a plan for perhaps the most important thing in Somalia. It did not have a security plan. Even as the rest of Mogadishu was getting safer, Danile was still this sort of wasteland with nightly raids by militants. And the government had no real proposal to protect the tens of thousands of people it wanted to move out there. And as the UN and the Somali government were trying to sort out this security issue, appointing task forces and having high-level meetings, the gatekeepers did not sit around waiting for their businesses to be taken away. No, they just gathered up the people told them, take your tents, we're moving the whole operation out of downtown. And this way, the government got its downtown real estate back. Gatekeepers protected their investment. Really, this whole private camp network didn't disappear. It just simply picked up and moved a few miles west. So what do the residents of these camps actually think about this? Think about being herded around Mogadishu like somebody's private property. Yeah, I was wondering the same thing, but these relocations happened after I left Somalia. Fortunately, I got the chance to hand a recorder to a representative of Refugees International who was happening to go into Mogadishu to check out these new camps. So this interview we're hearing, it was recorded just 10 days after one of these relocations. The woman speaking is a mother of seven. She did not want her name used because people who speak out against gatekeepers can be assaulted or worse. But she described to Refugees International the day that militiamen showed up in her camp and gave them until sunset to pack whatever they could carry and get out. And that's when she realized her gatekeeper had sold them. Actually, she used the Somali phrase, sold them over, traded them to a new custodian. Everybody left however they could. 
Some of them took public buses, some collected their stuff and their children and went on foot. Now, when they arrived at this new camp, this new plot of land that had been rented, they found nothing. There were no latrines, no food. No surprise there, the aid agencies hadn't shown up yet. It wasn't even a camp. It was nothing like the fully stocked settlement in Denile that the UN and the government had promised to offer. But then she took another look around at this hinterland, and she felt safe. Barring being given her old life back, her farm and the livestock she lost in the famine, she says this feeling of safety was the most precious thing she could ask for. We feel relaxed in this place. Allah has blessed us with peacefulness. We are not suffering here. The only problem is that there is no water. In fact, in several of these Refugees International interviews, you hear people saying that when the gatekeeper told them to go, they willingly followed because it was safer to stay in the group, safer to stay in the flock. So far, the government plan hasn't materialized. No one lives in Denile. It's still a dream. And till it happens, some people have clearly made the decision that it's better to be somebody else's asset, somebody's investment, than risk being on one's own in a country where life has had so little value for so long. As always, we love to hear what you think of Planet Money. And you can email us, planetmoney at npr.org. And special thanks today to Greg Warner, our correspondent in Nairobi, for bringing us this story today. Thanks, Greg. And I should also thank NPR's John Burnett, who was my predecessor in this beat. He clued me into this story. Thank you to Eric Browd and Mark Yarnell, who walked me through the gatekeeper phenomenon, and Justin Brady for you know, physically walking me through the gatekeeper territory. Yeah, and keeping you safe. We do appreciate it. If you like Planet Money, there are plenty of other great NPR podcasts out there, especially if you like big ideas and rich tapestries of sound, may I suggest? The TED Radio Hour, hosted by Guy Raz. You can find it on iTunes along with the other NPR podcasts. Our producer today is Fia Benin. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Gregory Warner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.